Rejoice in the Lord. Always. And again I say, Rejoice. It's good to be here. It's good to be up here. Uh, it has been a couple of interesting months. Uh, I, for years, hadn't missed a single Sunday from sickness and then missed two in a matter of two months. And in the last week, Ken preached. So it just feels good to be back doing what I love to do and to see everybody's smiling faces and even those that aren't smiling this morning. We're jumping into First John, so if you remember at the beginning of the year I kind of talked about our plan going forward, and, and so during the next eight weeks we're going to be walking through First John, but um, some of the life groups will actually be walking along with us, so like this morning we're preaching on verses 1 to 4, and if your life group's going along they might be preaching on verses, or teaching on verses 4 to 7 to kind of pick up where we left off in the sermon. So we're excited to have uh, some of those things coincide. So between the life groups and the service, we'll be covering all of First John over the next eight weeks, and we're excited to jump in. But if you've never read the book of First John, you'll notice it doesn't start by saying who wrote it. Uh, and we could spend a long time talking about all the different debates, but I think the consensus is this was written by the Apostle John. Uh, John walked with Jesus. And John also wrote uh, the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. You'll hear that same language all throughout those. And the book of Revelation. And John actually wrote 20% of the New Testament. Anyone know who wrote most of the New Testament? Now, if you said Paul, he wrote the most books. He wrote 13 letters. But actually, by word count, it's Luke. Uh, Luke, between Luke and Acts, wrote 28% of the New Testament, Paul falls a little bit below that, and John checks in at third with 20%. But who was this John? Well, James and John were fishermen. They were the sons of Zebedee, who Jesus called to be their disciples. Uh, John, along with uh, Peter and then John's brother James, were in the inner circle of Jesus. So when we talked about the discipleship pathway. We talked about how uh, there's the crowds that Jesus spoke to, and then there's this congregation sort, this group of followers that were with Jesus. At one point, there's 70. Another point, there's 120. And then you have the 12, the disciples. Within the 12, there were the three, kind of his inner circle, Peter, James, and John. And they were the only ones that were there when Jesus healed Jairus' daughter. They were there with Jesus at the transfiguration. They were there praying for Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane. And even though, even at Jesus' death, Peter ran away, scared, But there was John, right there, right by Jesus. And right before Jesus died, he he looks to John and he tells him, Take care of Mary, my mother. This was a person that was very close to Jesus. He later became known as the Apostle of Love. In the Gospel of John, rather than refer to himself by name, he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. So as you're reading through the Gospel of John, and you're like, how come they never mentioned John? But you just find, he'll say the disciple whom Jesus loved, and then he'll describe what happened. It was said that when he was older, he lived to be, he was the, one, the only disciple that wasn't martyred. He lived to be, some say in his hundreds, and the, the leaders, the elders at Ephesus would, according to church tradition, would carry John to the different congregations. And he was so old, he, could, he couldn't move around, so they carry him to different congregations. He would go into the congregation, and they would hoist him up in front, and everybody from the town would come to hear the last living apostle, and they would hoist him up, and he had a really simple sermon. He would just say, children, love one another. And that's it. He'd be done. 
Some of you guys wish my sermons were that short. But, but imagine the power that the, this guy that walked with Jesus, that was there at his crucifixion, that was there at his resurrection, wanted to leave one important message. Love one another. But how did this man become the, the, the apostle of love? You remember in Luke 9, uh, there's these Samaritans and they don't welcome the disciples in. And James and John, the brothers, go to Jesus and say, Hey, Jesus, should we call fire down on the city and destroy it all? And Jesus rebukes them. And Jesus, we don't know if this is why, but calls them the sons of thunder. Because they wanted to call fire down on the city. And that same guy is so changed by Jesus that he's known as the apostle of love. See how much God and Jesus changes people. Everything in John's writings emphasize love. In this short letter, he refers to God as the Father 13 times. Instead of calling the recipients the church, he calls them children 11 different times. And other times when he refers to them, he calls them loved ones or beloved. So we have this man who was changed dramatically by Jesus. Now we get into the book of 1 John, and as we were trying to map out the book for the sermons, we found it difficult, because my, my favorite uh, book of the Bible is Romans, and the reason why I love it is I'm very logical. And so in Romans you go, here's point A, which leads into point B, which leads into point C, and you just can just build on the previous points. It just makes a lot of logical sense. But John, it's more like spirals in 1 John. He'll go and he'll make this point, and then he'll come back around, and, and, then, and then he'll come back to it. And so he does this about four times throughout the gospel where it's going to go through in this epistle, and we're going to see the same, the same theme said a different way, approached a different way, but basically saying the same thing. So you'll find when you read it, you may be experiencing deja vu. And so J. Vernon McGee had this helpful picture as an outline of the book. If we put that up there. Uh, he said, we see these themes of, of light, love, and life. And so God is light, and God shows that light to me as an individual, as a believer, and he shows that light to other believers. God is love, and he demonstrates that love to me, and he demonstrates that love to other believers. Now, me as a Christian, I need to love God back, and other believers need to love God. So how do we tell that someone is a true believer? How can we see that someone loves God well, it's if they're walking in the light, if they're obeying God, and if they're loving others. That's the proof of life, that we love God, that we walk in light, and that we love others. And so you're going to see these themes over and over and over again. So let's pray, and we'll dive into this wonderful book together. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, as we open your word each week, we have a chance, Lord, a chance to, to read your word, to have it change us, to confront us, to encourage us, to challenge us. As we walk through the doors each and every week, we have a choice to passively listen or to actively participate and say, God, change me, mold me, work through your word. So today I pray that we do that. I pray that you speak through your word to my life, to our lives, and that you use it to glorify yourself and to build your kingdom. In your name we pray. Amen. Have you ever witnessed something awesome? I witnessed a number of different things that were pretty cool in my life. Some of them I witnessed in person, others not so much. The first one, in 1984, 
the Detroit Tigers won the World Series. This is my ticket. Um, no, I wasn't there. I was three years old. So I actually didn't. I'm sure I witnessed it live. But I remember it because as a kid, my friend had it on VHS, and we would always watch that key moment where Kirk Gibson hit the home run. We talk about it, and then later in life, I, I got it on DVD so I can go back and watch the 1984 World Series. In 2004, 2005, we had the amazing Ben Wallace, Fear the Fro. And uh, I lived in Philly at that time, and so I didn't get a chance to watch very many Detroit teams. But I got to watch the, the playoffs and got to, got to talk trash to all my Philadelphia friends that we had the best center in basketball, even though he couldn't shoot free throws or shoot really at all. But he played great defense and got a lot of rebounds. And it was fun to witness that team. But sometimes I got to witness things in person. In 2011, I made one of my biggest faux pas that I've ever made. I was organizing a trip with our church to go to a Tigers game together. We had so many people, we were going to take the bus. And I, I called ahead to get tickets. And when I called, it was actually one of my friends that answered. He worked for the Tigers. I had no idea. So we were shooting the breeze and talking, and, and he probably wasn't paying as close attention as he should have been, and I wasn't paying as close attention as I should have been. And it comes to the Saturday we're supposed to go to the game. Everybody looks at their tickets. The tickets are for Sunday. This was um, back when the Tigers were really good, so the game was sold out on Saturday, so we couldn't go. So we had to arrange to find a way to go to Sunday, to leave right after service, make sure we were there probably a little bit late, and go to the Tigers game. And everybody was upset with me on Saturday, but on Sunday, everybody was really happy. Because the game we went to, MLB.com, ranks as the second best game in the history of Comerica Park. And it was the game where Justin Verlander, pictured here, and, and Jared Weaver were neck and neck in the Cy Young race, and, and the Tigers in L.A. were neck and neck in the, in, in the, in the baseball and the pennant race and everything like that. And it went, uh, Justin Verlander pitched a, a no-hitter into the eighth inning, and Jared Weaver got really upset because Carlos Guillen stared him down, and so he threw at another guy's head, and he got kicked out, and all this stuff happened. It was this crazy game. So at the end, everybody said, thank you, Phil, for not paying attention to details. But I got to witness this amazing thing in person. Well, last one was even a little bit more important than these other ones. In 2010, my son Joshua was born. When he was born, I got to see him. I got to hear his cry. I got to hold him shortly after he peed on me and I had to clean myself off and they had to clean him off. Well, I got to experience the birth of my son and hold him in my arms and hear him. See, in this gospel, John is going to start off by saying, look, I was a witness I wasn't just a witness who heard about something. I wasn't just a witness who saw something from afar. I wasn't just a witness that cheered from the crowds. I saw Jesus. I touched Him. I heard Him. I walked with Him. Let's read John 1. That which was from the beginning. First John 1, sorry. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at with our hands and have touched, that we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, and we have seen it, and we testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you may have, you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father 
and with the Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. And that's what we're going to look at today, these, these four first verses. He begins with that which was from the beginning. We, just before I came up here, read the, the Gospel of John, where in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Both of these things start with the fact that Jesus has been existing eternally in the past, and He will exist eternally in the future. Genesis 1-1, the beginning of the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. When Jesus appeared, it wasn't the first time He appeared. He has always existed. He is the eternal God, the Alpha and Omega, with no beginning or no end. But that Jesus that was from the beginning appeared, became flesh. So John says, that which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked at, and our hands have touched. Why is John starting his his epistle like this? Why is he even saying this? Well, in those days, much like our days, the philosophies of the world tend to tend to slip into the church. And so there was this philosophy of Plato that was dualism, which led to Gnosticism, this thought that material things were bad. The, the material stuff was evil, and so the spiritual things were good. So we needed to seek the spiritual things. But that philosophy of the day started to creep into the church and it had a lot of different forms and and scholars debate which form exactly john is confronting but we know he's confronting this some form of this gnosticism there was one that was called docetism which they said you know well jesus couldn't have a physical body because the physical is bad and so they believed that jesus was a spirit and so if jesus went walking on the beach he wouldn't leave any footprints because he wasn't actually a physical human. And they believed that at his death and at his crucifixion, that, that it appeared that he was in pain, but it was his spirit, so he wasn't actually experiencing the pain. There were other forms of Gnosticism that believed that separated Jesus from, from the Son of God. And so they would say that the Son of God came on Jesus as a spirit at the baptism of the Spirit, uh, when we had, sorry, at, the, at, at Jesus' baptism. And then left before he suffered and before he was crucified. And so there's all these different, different uh, heresies that came about from Gnosticism with trying to say, okay, the physical is bad, but the spiritual is good. And so John is saying, look, that they're all wrong. John describes his own experience so they can see this is one person, Jesus, fully God and fully man. Listen to his experience and, and the experience of the apostles. He says, we... That which we have heard. John heard Jesus. Think about his life. He heard when Jesus rebuked him for wanting to call down fire from heaven on the Samaritans. He heard Jesus teach the Sermon on the Mount. He heard Jesus sit around the table with sinners and tax collectors, enjoying himself, having a good conversation. He heard Jesus invite others to follow him. He was there and heard Jesus forgive the thief on the cross and say, Today you will be with me in paradise. He heard Jesus say about the crowds that were mocking Him and got Him crucified, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And he heard Jesus say the command to go and make disciples of all the nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always. He says that which we've seen with our eyes, John saw Jesus. He saw Jesus feed a crowd of thousands with five simple loaves of bread and two fishes. He saw Jesus heal countless people from various physical issues, from leprosy to blindness to demon possession. He saw Jesus transfigured before them and his face shine like the sun. And the voice of the Father say, this is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. He saw Jesus call Lazarus to come out of the grave, to come out. And Lazarus came out, raised from the dead. He saw Jesus brutally tortured and executed and die. But then three days later, he saw Jesus raised from the dead and they saw Jesus ascend into heaven. He says, that which we have heard, that which we have seen, that which we have looked at. John looked at Jesus. Now you may say, it just said that which we've seen with our eyes. Isn't he saying the same thing by saying that which we looked at? Well, in this Greek, the, the emphasis is this idea of beholding, of, of, of grasping the meaning and the significance of what comes with our vision. And so, so John is saying, not only have I seen him, but I, I've watched and observed and, and I've, I've, I've grasped the significance of what he is doing. And then he said, and our hands have touched now this Greek word is the climax of the four because it doesn't just mean to like accidentally touch. It carries the idea of, of a blind man groping and finding what something is. Uh, I heard one uh, preacher say it this way. It's like when you go to the grocery store and you're trying to pick an apple and you, you pick out the apples and you examine the apples to make sure there's no uh, you know, bruises and things like that. It carries the idea of this of this examining something to make sure to figure out what it is. And I think that this is a direct allusion to after Jesus rose from the dead when he had the disciples come. And he said, feel my side. Feel my hands. And can you imagine the power of that? As each gathered around one at a time, walked up to Jesus, felt the scars in his hands, probably in his wrists where the nail was driven in, to feel his side where the spear had punctured in and the blood and the water had spilled out. John says, look, it's clear. I saw him. I heard him. I touched him. There was that song in the 90s, I don't remember who sang it, What If God Was One Of Us? Not, not a good song at all, but the point was he was. God incarnate, flesh came. And John says, I walked with him. I talked with him. I heard him. I saw him. I touched him. He was, he is God. All you Gnostics over there that says he was just this floating spirit. No, floating spirits don't have scars. This is Jesus. And if you witnessed that, if you touched and felt and heard you want to tell the whole world. And so he says, this we proclaim about the word of life. When something amazing happens, we want to tell other people. That's the whole premise of Facebook, right? Something bad happens, we go on Facebook or TikTok or whatever and complain. Something great happens, we go on show them, look at where we are. All the people right now in the warm Florida stuff post, stop. Okay? We've had enough. 
I'm talking to you, whoever is watching online because you're in Florida somewhere warm. It's not fair. But that's what we do. Like we're experiencing something good and we're like, I got to share this. And John says, look, we've heard this. We need to proclaim this. Proclaim concerning the word of life. The word, the message, and the person can't be separated. The message is Jesus. God sent the message in flesh to come to us. The word of life. Jesus brings life all throughout John's writings. We see the significance of life, bread of life, living water. This idea of this action. The message can't be separated from the person. The life appeared. We have seen it. We testify to it. We proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. Look at the contrast. He says, the life appeared. The Word which was from the beginning appeared. Have we lost the wonder of that simple statement? I think sometimes we become so familiar with these simple truths that we lose sight of how amazing they are. This analogy is going to break down a little bit, but... um, I have a guilty pleasure. I love Big Macs from McDonald's. I know everybody thinks Big, McDonald's isn't very good food, and I, in general, agree with them, but the Big Mac, the special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions, on a sesame seed bun, amazing. Perfect, perfect ratio of bread to meat to sauce, perfect. But I worked at McDonald's for three years. By the end of the time, I did not like Big Macs. And I think I, I, think I went a couple years without having a Big Mac. Because I just became so familiar with it and so used to it that I didn't want it anymore. And then eventually I went back. I'm like, this thing is amazing. Why did I wait so long to eat it? And so sometimes I'll take my medicine that allows me to have gluten and and I'll risk it for the Big Mac. And sometimes it's worth it. I'm like, that was... And other times, oh man, I shouldn't have done that. But the the point is, you know, when you become familiar with something, when it becomes common, you, you just... You think it's not that big of a deal. We, we get this way about all different types of things. Something may seem amazing, you know, and then we get used to it. And we're like, oh, it becomes a ritual. Many times we come to church on Sunday mornings because it's a ritual. It's what we're supposed to do. But that analogy breaks down a lot because, you know, the gospel is a lot better than a Big Mac. But have you ever had to sacrifice something that was hard? You know, uh, my, my wife and I love to go on, on dates on my day off. And, but uh, with Christmas and sickness, and we had a period of many different weeks where, where we couldn't go on a date. And I just remember being like, ah, it was grumpy pants, you know. I, I want to go on a date. We haven't been on a date. This stinks. But, but we often think about, man, I don't like to give up stuff. I, I, like, I like my comfort. And here's God, the creator of the universe, sitting on his throne perfect harmony with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And he creates this plan to willingly take on flesh, to become a human, to walk through life, to lose his earthly father and experience grief, to experience hunger and thirst, to go from town to town, often being rejected, depending on the generosity of others for his needs, to be betrayed by one of his closest friends, to be mocked, brutally tortured, and to be killed for us. Talk about sacrifice. Philippians 2 paints the picture that that's the type of love we're supposed to have. Sacrificial love. That life appeared. 
May we never lose wonder of that statement that Jesus appeared, that God appeared, became flesh. He says, this life, this Jesus, the light of life, the bread of life, the living water, the word of life, the eternal life, appeared. John said, we've seen it, and we testify to it. We proclaim to you the eternal life, which is with the Father and has appeared to us. The apostles encountered Jesus, and he changed them. And so they wanted to testify about it, to proclaim it. And so what did they do? It's, he said, we proclaim to you what we've seen and heard, so that you may also have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son. Jesus' strategy is interesting. Take 12 ordinary guys, fishermen, tax collector, a zealot, different people, people we wouldn't choose, and through them start a movement that would change the world. And he would say to them in Acts 1, you will be my witnesses. When the power of the Spirit comes upon you, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Because Jesus changed them, and they were going to continue to proclaim the good news. Now, John said, we proclaim these things, what? So that you can have fellowship. And then he says, fellowship with us and fellowship with the Father and His Son, Jesus. Now, we often, as Christians, we probably don't know a lot of Greek words, but there's one we hear all the time, koinonia, koinonia, koinonia. It means fellowship. It means sharing in common, sharing together. But here in this context, I love the definition that John Stott gives of koinonia here. He says, Fellowship is a specifically Christian word and denotes that common participation in the grace of God, the salvation of Christ, and the indwelling spirit, which is the spiritual birthright of all believers. So what do, what do we have in common? What are we sharing in common? John Stott said it's, it's the grace of God, the salvation of Christ, the indwelling of the spirit, and the birthright. But then he goes on and says, it is our common possession of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which makes us one. Because we're called to have fellowship with each other, but also fellowship that's made possible because we have fellowship with God. And here again, John points out, this is not just Jesus. This is God the Son. He again points out the heresy that exists and says, no, this is God the Son. This is who we have fellowship with. In John 17, uh, John recorded Jesus' prayer for us. And Jesus' prayer is, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. See the idea that Jesus paints? What what is this idea of fellowship? Pray that all of them may be one, fellowship with us, and that they may also be in us, fellowship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. This idea of fellowship with God and with each other. I mean, it really flows from the idea that the greatest commandment is to love God and love others. Out of that flows that fellowship that is possible because of what Christ did. And so John said, look, we need to have fellowship. Fellowship with us and fellowship with God. And then he gives the phrase, we write this to make our joy complete. 
Now, John uses this phrase, we write this four different times, uh, and we'll see those over the next eight weeks. And the last one, I think, is actually talking about the whole book, why he wrote the whole book, that, we can, that those of us who believe in God can know that we're saved. But here, I think he's actually pointing back to what he just said. The message of eternal life through Jesus is given so that our joy may be complete. John Calvin describes joy as the complete and perfect felicity with which we obtain from the gospel. And John uses this phrase of complete joy multiple times. John 3, 15, 17, 2 John 12. And each time it's in this connection between fellowship with God and fellowship with each other. So that our joy flows from our fellowship with God and our fellowship with each other. That God uses that to bring us joy. Now we recognize we live in a fallen world. So joy will never be fully complete until Christ comes and Christ returns. Because we are all affected by sin and by the struggles of this world but that joy is possible in the midst of circumstances time and time again i walk through people with difficult circumstances and they just point back to the joy that they have in the lord i want you to do this I, we were i'm part of this collective and uh, uh, a cohort of pastors and uh in a couple of weeks uh, john and i will be heading down south um and he'll be there the first week we'll be doing a conference the second half of the week uh, second part of the week is going to be with that cohort that I've been working with for the last six months. And we had a chance to, to interview. Um, they've been interviewing some, some pastors that you probably recognize their names. And one of them is going through a significant struggle right now in his church. And, and he shared, he said, you know, back, I look back at this thing and everything was going great. The, my book was on the New York Times bestseller and, and the church was growing and, and all these things. He said, in the midst of that, you know, there's always a million things to do. He said, I kind of lost focus of, of, of my time with the Lord. It was, there was no sin or anything like that, but just, you know, I was just doing all this stuff. He said, right now I'm in the hardest season I've ever experienced. He said, my, 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 my sharing in Christ has never been deeper. He said, every day I need that time with the Lord. He said, I need it. I can't miss it. And he goes, sometimes I wonder, would I choose the easy life where everything's going great, but not have that sweet fellowship with my Savior, or I choose this difficult season where my relationship with Jesus is so sweet. And he said that, man, sometimes it's hard because we all want that easy life. But he's drawn in and experienced that joy that only Christ can provide in difficult times. But we all have the hope of a future joy. In Psalm 16, talks about God filling us with joy in His presence, with eternal pleasures in His right hand. And so we can look forward to that moment. So looking at all that, like, how do we take this and, and boil it down? Because, you know, we're not really in a culture that is arguing that Jesus was a spirit and wasn't a real human. In fact, you know, I think even... You know, all the different scholars from different religions acknowledge that Jesus was, there was this historical figure named Jesus who, who died. Now, there would stop there, we would say, and rose again. But I think it's important, even though we're not facing Gnosticism in our days, we need to be careful, here's application one, we need to be careful not to allow the philosophies of our culture to influence our theology. We need to be careful not to allow the philosophies of our culture to influence our theology. John needed to address Gnosticism because it had snuck into the church. What's sneaking in 
through your theology. What little things that the, the culture says are sneaking in and, and allowing you to lose focus. As, as was said there in that preview of the w- morning of surrender, the, the, the little mini-conference, we realize that right now our culture is preaching. And we can easily be indoctrinated by the movies we watch, the music we listen to, and even the news that we watch. And that goes on both sides, the right and the left. We live in a polarized society, and it can be easy to be swayed by people we consider to be on the right side of the issue. We find ourselves evaluating everything through those lenses rather than the lenses of Scripture. We need to be careful not to allow the philosophy of our culture to influence how we interpret Scripture. Second, we need to proclaim Christ. I gave today's sermon the title, Once You See It, because the idea is that when you've experienced Jesus, it'll never, you'll never be the same. There are some things we experience that won't change us very much. You know, I mean, other than really loving a big Afro uh, bobblehead, that 2004 championship didn't really change my life very dramatically, other than I got a chance to tease all my Philadelphia fans that I lived by. Other than redeeming the fact that I blew buying the tickets for the wrong day, the the game with Verlander didn't change much. But Joshua's birth dramatically changed my life. If you ever had a kid, you understand that your life gets, in the words of Fresh Prince, flipped and turned upside down. So when we experience something, then it it changes us. And, And when I experienced that, I wanted to tell the whole world, I have a son. I was so excited. And we do this with all things. We see a good movie. We tell everybody. When we, when we go to a great restaurant, we tell everybody. When we visit a wonderful town on vacation, we tell people they should go there. But are we the same way with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Has it changed us? Do we testify about it? Do we proclaim it to everybody who needs to hear? Now, we haven't physically heard, seen, or touched Jesus like John has. But I hope that if you've been a believer for any amount of time that you've heard God through His Word. As you open it, you know what He calls us to do. That you've seen God's action in your life. You can look back and see how God has been working. That He's touched you in in unique ways that you can tell others about it. See, because of what we've experienced, we need to proclaim Christ. Uh, A few months ago, we introduced the idea of your one, of having one person that you pray for daily, invest in weekly, and invite to the next right thing, whatever that thing is. And we're, we're starting to incorporate that into our D groups. So every week in my D group, we ask, you know, how did you invest in your one this week? Out in the foyer over there, there's prayer guides that you can pick up to, to pray for your one every day for 30 days, and it has different things to pray for them. And we're, we're going to start incorporating that into life groups here in the future but this idea that if, if we've experienced Christ, it needs to change us, and then we need to tell others. We need to proclaim it. Because God entered into history and took on flesh and died and rose again so that we could have life. Third, we need to pursue fellowship with God and with others. And I believe that leads to joy. Joy begins when we have fellowship with God. Most of us have experienced that. If we are spending time with the Word, then he, we're, we're more ready to experience the joy 
that he can bring. I found that in my life when I'm spending daily time with God that I'm less likely to be selfish. I'm less likely to to react quickly to my family. It doesn't mean I I don't still have struggles, because I do. But I just found that walking in step with the Spirit allows me to exhibit the fruits of the Spirit. If you're a kid's connection, hopefully you know these by now. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. We sing this song, and they're all going, hey. But those flow out of a relationship, out of the fellowship that we have with God. When we're in fellowship with God, then those, those fruits of the spirits flow out of us. But then we're called to have fellowship with others. Sharing in this community with the spirit that provides us the opportunity to have fellowship with others. Living like Christ did. To hearken back to a sermon a, a few weeks ago. When Paul was telling the church how to use their spiritual gifts, he said, that I'm going to show you a greater way. He'd gone through all the different spiritual gifts, and they were having all those debates about which one's better and those kind of things. He said, I'm going to show you a better way. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It's not self-seeking. It keeps no records of wrongs. I'm going to miss the next one, but I remember the ending. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres love never fails see prophecies are going to cease tongues are going to cease but love is never gonna fail we're called to love god and love others to have fellowship with god and have fellowship with others and that is so that our joy may be made complete that is how god provides us with joy and once you see it it changes you you may witness it from afar Witness it after, witness it in person, or it may be something that so changes you that you have touched it, you've felt it, you've experienced it, and so you need to proclaim it to others. So, reminder, we need to be careful not to allow the philosophies of our culture to come and influence our theology. We need to proclaim Christ, to testify about His goodness, and we need to pursue fellowship with God and with others that leads to joy. Let's pray. God, thank You for these reminders from Your Word. Lord, it can be so easy to be influenced by our culture. It can be easy to fill our minds constantly with talk radio or podcasts or TV shows and to have those influence us, Lord. And I pray that you help us to continually fill our hearts with your word. As Deuteronomy 6 says, that we meditate on your word day and night. That we talk about as we walk along the road, as we sit down, as we get up. That it becomes so much of a part of our life that, that daily we're just with you. And that we experience a fellowship with you that, that leads to fellowship with others, that leads to joy. And Lord, help that joy to flow out in our conversations with others. That we will proclaim it to the world. That Jesus entered into history and has changed us. We want other people to experience that same life change that we've experienced. In your name we pray. Amen.